0: You're listening to the Sunday morning message from Clouds Creek Baptist Church. Join us for worship Sunday morning at 11. Or for more information, visit cloudscreek.org. I've really enjoyed going through the book of Mark and really getting to experience the life of Jesus and seeing the good news um, kind of in action. We get to see the good news as it As it happens, and and I pray that Jesus is more real to us because of this series. That that is my desire, is that we will see his life and how he lived. And that would be what motivates us to live out of this good news. Last week we talked about, uh, we saw the tree that didn't bear fruit and that Jesus cursed it. Um, And so we saw the importance that we bear fruit as believers. And then we saw the importance of being faithful. Filled prayers. I don't know if you guys experienced this from last week, but I know that for me, I saw it so much as a challenge to change my prayer life. And and I pray that it would continue to grow and continue to be a prayer life of specific things and asking God and trusting Him to do big things and specific things in my life. I literally had it this morning that I didn't pull up my notes before I left home. And I don't know if anybody else doesn't get phone service here, but I don't. And so I'm sitting in that room trying to get my notes to pull up, and they just wouldn't. And I finally was like, God, I really need my notes to pull up. I really need them to pull up so I don't have to drive down the road until I get service. I'm not kidding. I said that, and they came up. So I've even seen God answer specific prayers if you just ask them. I think that's cool that we can ask God specific things. Where we are today is a continuation of Mark chapter 11. We're going to be in chapter 12 if you've got your Bibles and you want to follow along. We'll be in Mark chapter 12 and this picks up with Jesus continuing being in the temple. And he's in the temple and the way Jesus is working at this point, he's probably consistently got a lot of people following him. Is that's just kind of how it worked. Is people just followed Jesus to see what he was doing, they wanted to know what he was about, and he always had this crowd around him. So you can assume that in the temple with him is this large crowd of people, so he's not hard to miss, right? So, what we have today is you're going to see several different religious leader types come up and ask Jesus questions, and again. It's hard to know if these are questions just of genuine curiosity or if these are questions that they're trying to make him stumble, trying to corner him. That's what it seems like more often than not, is that it is them trying to get him to, to stumble, trying to back Jesus into a corner with trick questions. Um, but anyway, he's, he's in the temple and he starts to just teach. He's got a large crowd of people that are following him. He's with all the religious leaders and so he starts to teach. I'm just kind of we've got a lot to cover this morning, so I'm going to sum up this first story um, but this first story is that he starts off with a story of a landowner who plants a vineyard. And he plants a vineyard, and then he goes away, and he, he's got some tenants who are going to rent the land from him. And so it comes time for harvest, and he sends one of his servants back uh, to get some of the harvest. And they the people who are renting the land from him, they beat that servant and send him back. So then he sends a second servant who is beaten and it says treated shamefully. Then he sends a third servant and that servant is killed. And so finally he's like, listen, they won't listen to any of these guys. So I'll send, what it says is I will send my beloved son. And the people say, if we kill the son, then we will get the inheritance. And their thinking probably is that the landowner has died and that's why they're sending, he's sending his son. is because the landowners died and they think, well, if we kill his son, then we get to just keep the land. So they kill the son and Jesus says, won't the landowner come to destroy the tenants and give the land to someone else? And I want to pick up in verse 10 because he starts to quote Isaiah here. He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it was marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Jesus tells them exactly what has happened and what is happening. That he has sent his beloved son and his son is going to be killed by people who don't want to give up control of the vineyard. By the people who they think, well, if we kill his son, then we will still stay in control and this will be ours. That's literally what's happening here and they're starting to understand it. And I want to point out something here. Jesus references the idea of a cornerstone. And I don't know how many things y'all have built in your life, how many buildings you've built with bricks. Me, not many. Uh, I can say it's less than one. So um, the cornerstone is important, though. The cornerstone is the most important part of the structure. Because you set the cornerstone down, and it determines both of the angles that the building is going to go. How straight that cornerstone is, the positioning of that cornerstone sets up the rest of the building, both vertically and both sides. It determines the rest of the building. The cornerstone is the first stone laid. It is the most important. And here we have Jesus pointing out that the builders, the religious leaders, have rejected the cornerstone. The cornerstone of the new covenant that Jesus is coming and he is going to become and establish a new covenant as the cornerstone. And this is what he's saying when he says the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. They've rejected him, not understanding his importance. And then let's, let's pick up in verse 13. It says, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. This is one of those trick questions that he has brought. This is one of the trick questions because they're trying to corner him and back him into deciding one of two things. He either says, No, you don't have to pay taxes which is a rebellion against the Roman government, or he says, yes, you have to pay taxes, and then it looks like he is bending his knee to the Roman government. And so the, the leaders are trying to corner him again into getting into one of these two camps so that they can then you know, get on to him for whichever side that he, he fell. But what's interesting is that he flips the situation around on them because when he says, bring me a denarius... What did, they, what did they do? They brought, they brought it, which means they had one. Which means the very people who were trying to say, so are you going to give in to the Roman government? Had a coin from supporting the commerce of the Roman government. The very people who are trying to say, hey, do you really, are you really going to support the Roman government? Were themselves supporting the Roman government. And that's why he calls them hypocrites. He's like... Look, y'all are trying to corner me on this question, but you have their currency in your pockets. So don't try to corner me in this. Then the Sadducees, they come to him and they present this. This situation is a little ridiculous. I don't know if you have ever had people that have come up with these what-if scenarios. Well, what if this happens and what if this happens? And you're like, okay, the odds of that happening are just ridiculous. And that's what the Sadducees do here. This situation that we're, we're going to see is, is really ridiculous. Um, and I'm going to just sum up the ridiculous situation for you is that it says, okay, if a woman is married, she doesn't have any kids and her husband dies and she marries his brother because that's what they were supposed to do. And then they don't have any kids and that brother dies. And this happens seven times. So this woman has seven husbands and no children. Again, a ridiculous what-if statement. <laughs> and they, they say, okay, so what happens when she gets to heaven? Who is she married to? And again, they're trying to trap Jesus into to getting into their own beliefs. Or maybe they were genuinely confused. So we're going to pick up in verse 24. It says, Jesus said to them, is this not the reason that you're wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Is he not the God of the dead? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. See, the Sadducees, they didn't believe in two things that they asked about here. They didn't believe in resurrection And they didn't believe in angels. So trying to get Jesus on a question is is really about the resurrection. Jesus also kind of throws in there to remind them, hey, just so you know, there are also angels. You should know this. To correct their theology even uh, in, in a question that they asked. And what's interesting, I think what we can take away from this, is what Jesus is telling us with the first part of his answer, is that there's no way... For us to understand what relationships will be like in heaven. Because what he says is, they will be like angels. And it's like, oh, okay, I guess it all makes sense now. Because we all know how angels' relationships work, right? Like, I I think he gives this answer because it's supposed to be like, you're not going to understand. I could try to explain it to you, but in reality... Don't worry about it. <laughs> I feel like it's kind of his answer. is It's like, even if I tried to explain it to you, you wouldn't get it. And I think it's we don't understand the relationships that angels have with each other. I would assume it's pretty awesome because of the whole no sin thing. You know that these relationships are completely sinless between each other. I think it's got to be fairly awesome. But I think what Jesus is trying to tell us is that heaven is better than you think. Heaven is better than... Than you think that marriage, which can be one of the best things to experience here on earth, doesn't even compare to the relationships we're going to experience in heaven. I'm going to be honest with you all, I had some trouble with this passage because the Bible is not clear on whether or not we will recognize each other in heaven. The closest we get is the fact that somehow Peter, James, and John recognize Moses and Elijah at the transfiguration. So there's something to take away there. But I think we struggle with that idea because relationships are the best thing we have here on earth. Relationships really are kind of the the building block, the main thing of all of our lives is relationships. So I think that when we can't comprehend how great heaven can be, so we think, well, if it doesn't have this thing that I think is good, well, then I don't want it. Uh, Maddie, how many of you guys like cinnamon rolls? Most everybody. How many of you guys like cheesecake? Cheesecake. Even more people. Okay. So Maddie makes a cinnamon roll cheesecake that's unreal. And like instead of the crust, it's like smushed cinnamon rolls that bake into the crust. And it's got like the cinnamon is on on top of the cheesecake. And it's got like the icing is a drizzle on top. It's delicious, right? So one time we're trying to give it to Zeke. And he doesn't want to eat it. And he straight up will not eat it. And we're like, buddy. Buddy. I'm trying to tell you, this is like ice cream good. This is like better than a cookie good. Like you need to try this. And he's like, no, but that boy will destroy a (laughs) Pop-Tart. He doesn't care what Pop-Tart you give him. He'll just eat the Pop-Tart because he likes Pop-Tarts. I think if we get hung up on the fact that we may or may not be married or we may or may not recognize each other in heaven, or if we're going to have Pop-Tarts, we're missing the point. We're missing the point, and we're missing out on something far better than we could even imagine because we want something that we can understand. We're passing on cinnamon roll cheesecake because what we want is Pop-Tart. I really hope heaven is too good for me to understand on earth. I really don't think if I could fully comprehend everything that heaven's gonna be right now in this moment, I think if I could fully comprehend it, it wouldn't be that impressive. Right? If I could fully comprehend it, it would be like, when I got there, I'd be like, oh, okay. But when it is something better than you can comprehend, when that's what our expectation of heaven is, we gotta stop focusing on if there's gonna be Pop Tarts. And trust that God has something better. Just like we were like, Zeke, you got to try this cinnamon roll cheesecake, man. It's so good. And for him to be like, nah, I'll take a Pop-Tart. I don't want us to do that. To sell whatever God has for us short because we want what we know and what we've experienced. And I think that's the point that Jesus is trying to make here is, look, it's not a question of who they're going to be married to in heaven. Because relationships are going to look different and you can't understand it now. And that's good. And that's the point where I'm at, and it's, it's still something that I wrestle with. Of Okay, so what is it going to be like? I have to get to the point where it's like, something better than I've ever had. Something better than I could even imagine. I really hope heaven is too good for me to understand it now. Because if we just simplify it to a family reunion with fried chicken, I think we're setting the bar too low. It's better than we think Let's pick up in verse 28. It says, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, being Jesus, he asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And I know we've heard this before. I think this next part is really cool. Look at what the scribe says. The scribe says to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no one besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all, than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. I love that last sentence. It's like nobody, nobody dared to ask him any more questions. And I love that. I think when we read that last line where Jesus says you are not far from the kingdom of God, I don't think that he said it in a stern way. I, I can see a smile on Jesus' face. He says, you're getting it. All these people have been asking questions, trying to trip me up, getting getting focused on things that aren't important, but you're starting to get it. I think that had to make him smile to see this religious leader starting to really grasp what Jesus is trying to do here on earth. And the takeaway here is that Jesus wants us to love God and love people. It all boils down to these two things, love God and love people, truly the two most important things we can do. I want us all to kind of take a second and think about your life. Think about the things that you do every day, that you do a couple times a week, the the thoughts, what, what pops into your mind when you have nothing else in your brain and what kind of pops in or what do you choose to think about. Think about all of those things. All of the things that make up your daily life. And if someone were, were kind of uh, taking an inventory of all of those things, and they were writing down, okay, well, Pat thought about this, and, and then, he, then he did this, and then Kevin was thinking about this, and then, then he started you know, working on this. You know, If you start to think this way, if you think, okay, what are the things, what would they come up with at the end? What would they come out with is the most important thing in your life? based on your thoughts, based on your actions, what would they come up with? What would they find out that you love? And where on that list would God be? Is your life full of worship and adoration? Are you more focused on the kingdom of God or or your own comfort? We get so wrapped up in things of this world And I don't know how well we actually love the Lord above everything else in our lives. And I truly think that we have to be in that state in order to do the second thing. I don't think that we can love our neighbors as ourselves on our own. We have to be full of the love of God in order for that to be what's overflowing to the people around us. What I love is that the scribe points out that loving God and loving people are more important than all the burnt sacrifices, all the offerings. How you live every day is far more important than where you spend your Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights. What is important is that we live lives that are full of loving God with everything that we have and loving people more than ourselves. What's hard for me to swallow is how... um, How heavy this hit the people he's talking to. Because the the Jews of that day, they stressed about their relationship with God. They stressed about following the law. It is what was all-consuming to them, was following the law, honoring God with their lives. It was all-consuming. And honestly, that's the verse that's on the back of our t-shirts, Come to me, all who weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That is for the people of Israel who were stressing every day about their own righteousness. And God says, look, Jesus says, come to me and I will give you spiritual rest. Stop stressing over following the law. Stop stressing over making sure every little thing that you do. And here Jesus says, just do these two things. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And love your neighbor as you love yourself. Just boil it all down to these two things. And he doesn't just mean a little bit of love. He doesn't mean just kind of love. This is an unreal amount of love, an obsession with God and a passion for people. An obsession with God and a passion for people. And we live so distracted. I think that's our problem. We live so distracted. There's a study that was done in the 1970s. The average consumer saw 500 ads per day. Right? Seems like a lot still. 500 ads a day. Now, that number is between 4,000 and 10,000 ads per day that you are being bombarded with. And that doesn't count all of the the things that are not ads that we're choosing to watch or to to read or to see or the Facebook posts or or the news stories that we see that we're we're choosing. That 4,000 to 10,000 per day doesn't include the things that we choose, right? And that's why we have to guard our time with God so closely. We have to guard it. Because otherwise it gets lost. We have to fight for it. I doubt many of us are like, hmm, I don't really have anything else to do. I guess I can just sit down and read my Bible. I got nothing else. I know some of you in this room are retired and you may have that luxury and that's awesome, praise the Lord. But I know you would say it hasn't always been that way. It hasn't always been, well, I got absolutely nothing on my calendar Nobody needs me. I guess I'll just read my Bible. It's something that we have to fight for. We have to fight against being bombarded with with media and entertainment or work or whatever it is. We have to fight to make God a priority. When you love someone or something, you make time for it. I'm a huge Falcons fan. Never once in my life have I said, did the Falcons play today? I didn't even know. I didn't know. I just totally, you know, I missed the game. I'm just busy. I've got so much going on. I just totally forgot. Never once has that happened. But those are phrases that we use about reading our Bible. I totally, totally just didn't even think about it. Totally forgot. Slipped my mind but you make time for other things. You make time for the things that are important in your life. It's essential to fight for our time in the Word. Because if we don't, suddenly that love we're supposed to have for God with all of our thoughts, all of our emotions, all of our life is being given to other things. And our relationship with God is on the back burner. We get to the end of Mark, and I want to hop down to verse 41, and you get to see someone who is living this in action, that they've got God as number one priority. Let's pick up in verse 41. It says, and he, being Jesus, sat down opposite the treasury and watched people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples and said to, him, said to them, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is not a parable. This is not one of those stories like we started with of the, the landowner who has tenants and you know that was a parable. This is a true story of Jesus is sitting and watching the offering box. Watching these people, and the reason that he's, you know, the reason that was the thing is that people would come and have these bags and they would just make a loud, you you think about the sound of change just dumping into things, and they would just dump it, and it was a show almost that people would make this big gesture out of giving so much money, when in reality, it, it wasn't that much to what they were actually worth they were just giving out of abundance. It was like, oh yeah, I've got this extra. I'll give that to God. And then this woman comes. She gives everything. In complete contrast to those who were putting pouring in coins, which would have been so noisy. I think about like if you guys have ever done one of those coin star machines or ever been in the grocery store, even in the back corner when someone was doing those coin star machines, you know someone's doing it. You're never like like you can hear it over the whole grocery store. It's so loud. And I feel like that's what it would have been like, like these guys pouring in their coins. And you contrast that with the widow who comes and drops in her two, and it might not even made a sound. This is in the temple. There's a lot going on. And so her dropping these two tiny coins into the offering might not have made any sound at all. There was zero show about what, they, about what she was doing. But Jesus saw that this woman was giving God everything. Give God everything. Don't hold anything back. Not your diet, not your TV shows, not your sleep or your work or your finances. Give everything to God. Let Him be in control of every aspect of your life. Because he is faithful. This is not something that we do just because God's bossy and he wants to be in control, but because he wants better for you. You cannot do anything that would be better than what God wants for you. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, it says, Now to him, being God, who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in the Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I love that it doesn't just say he's able to do more, he's able to do abundantly. Far more abundantly than you could ever ask or imagine. I don't think Paul could explain anything in a bigger way at all. Far more abundantly than you could ever think. So when we put in our two copper coins, it's because he's got something better. We're incapable of thinking of something as good as what he has for us. So give up your Pop-Tarts so he can give you cinnamon roll cheesecake. Give him your relationships, your finances, your worry, your time, your energy, your skills, and see if he won't do more than you could ever ask or imagine. The widow wasn't concerned for her ability to eat that week. She wasn't concerned with her ability to buy clothes or or get, you know, whatever it was, get gas for her donkey. Like, she wasn't concerned with any of those things. She just wanted to give it all to God. And trust that he had something better than two copper coins. That last sentence that the scripture we read says, it gets me. She put everything she had to live on. She put in everything she had to live on. There are no financial planners on the planet who would say, well, the wisest thing to do with all your money is just give it all away. It's really the wisest thing. Don't worry about your mortgage. Don't worry about your bills. Don't worry about your food. Just give it all away. Not a financial planner on the planet would tell you that. At least not one who's worth anything. But I think that that's what's so amazing about it. Is that she was willing to give God everything. He applauds her for something that we would describe as unwise. Unwise. He says, she gets it. She's not holding anything back. Let's pray. God, give us the faith of that woman. Give us her boldness and her love that she had for you. That she was willing to give everything she had to you. Make us people who are driven to love you with everything we have and that the love that we have would overflow to the people around us and that we would be people who are obsessed with you and passionate about loving other people. Let us take what you taught the religious people in this passage and apply it to our lives. It's your name we pray. Amen.